0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Let's get started. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. Those watching you live, thanks watching us live, thanks for joining us. We began to look last week at James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. This can be a very difficult passage. And in my opinion, I think the misunderstanding of this passage has caused one of the most tragic interpretive blunders in the church. It's the misunderstanding of this passage that causes believers to judge the eternal salvation of others based on how they live, based on the things they do, based on their works. They'll look at somebody and say, well, look what they're doing. They can't be a Christian. And many have the view, if you don't live right, and by right they mean up to their standards, it's because you're not saved. And it's my opinion, that's a very destructive belief. It creates a doctrine of salvation by works, which goes against what the Bible teaches. And it really creates a bunch of Pharisees that are running around judging other Christians because they don't live up to the standards that they've met. In James 2.14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save them? Now, Bob, were you reading from the King James? Uh, yes. Okay. The King James left out that or such faith, which is good because it doesn't belong there. It's been stuck in, but the King James actually got it correct there. And we talked about this last week. The key to understanding James is to understand his use of, of the Greek word sozo, that's translated here as save. James does not use save to speak of eternal redemption. We hear the word, that's, I think that's pretty much all we think of when we hear saved, is eternal redemption. But in the Hebrew sense, it was used much more of physical deliverance, temp, from temporal judgment. So James is telling his readers how to save their lives from the damage that sin brings. That's what James is about. Look what he says in 121. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your lives. And that's sozen tensuke, save your life. If you deal with this sin, get it out of your life. It's literally able to save your life you from the damage that sin brings. James 5, 19-20. He says, My brothers, if any of you wander from the truth. He's writing to Christians. Only a Christian can wander from the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul, so Zen Tensuke, from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These verses all deal with how to save your life from the temporal judgment of, of God on sin. In verse 14 James is asking what will be the physical temporal benefits to a Christian who doesn't act on what he believes? Our faith won't save us from the temporal judgment of God that our sinful lives brings in because God judges sin. In James 2:12 and 13 he says so speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he launches right into verse 14. Now, we talked last time about the article of previous reference, which some try to use to try, they add the word such or the word that to faith in verse 14. And these additions are totally unjustified, and they're only done to try to make James fit their theology. This addition to faith has caused the church, I think, to adapt the idea that there are different kinds of faith. It has made faith mystical, undefinable, and has added support to the anti-logical movement. Now, Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Dutch theologian of the mid-19th century, he's attributed with starting this subjective movement that we have in Christianity today, it, the most of the church has been swept away by, and Kierkegaard said this, it really makes no difference what you believe. The how is all that matters. If you are really passionate, if you really have a zeal, that's all that's important. What you believe really doesn't make any difference. Wow. What kind of yeah, exactly. <laughs> And here's the problem, though, people. We see this everywhere in the church today. Mindless passion. And Kierkegaard used the illustration of an Orthodox Lutheran and a Hindu. And he says the Orthodox Lutheran prayed to God, but he just didn't have any passion. He just prayed according to knowledge. And Kierkegaard said, this is useless to God. But if you take a Hindu praying before an idol... If he prayed with passion, he says he would, in fact, be praying to the true God, even though he had no knowledge of God. And Kierkegaard's buzz phrase was infinite passion, and it was just all about emotion and your passion and had nothing to do with what you knew. He said we encounter God by zeal. I think the Charismatics have taken this on and said, that's all about. It's all about we get into a frenzy, we get very emotional, that's what it's all about. I think Kierkegaard's teaching has infected the modern church. So I want to give you a deep theological thought here you need to think about for a moment. When it comes to faith, there are not different hows. There are only different what's. It is what you believe that matters, despite what Kierkegaard said, okay? It is what you believe that matters. Faith is understanding and assent to a proposition. We talked about that last week. You can't believe the wrong way. You can only believe the wrong thing, okay? Because belief is belief. You know if you believe something you don't believe it. They try to make that mystical. Others try to confuse the issue by saying that faith includes more than just belief. you got to do other things like you got to surrender or you have to have a commitment or you have to do whatever. George Manfred Goodsky wrote this. He says, When we say we believe, we must always include that believing is yielding ourselves to the will of God. Now, I think he's adding an element to faith here that's not there. See, faith is an act. When you believe, you're given eternal life. Yielding is a process. And as we grow in the Christian life, we should continue to yield ourselves to the will of God. That's practical growth. But if faith includes yielding to the will of God, then my question is, how much do I have to yield to be saved? Because how many of you would say you are totally yielded to God? I can't sing the song, I Surrender All. I think it's a lie. I don't surrender all. Okay, so I'm not going to sing that. I'd like to, I try to, but I don't surrender all. You know, let's sing songs about God and His glory, then how wonderful we are. I surrender all. I'm wonderful, Lord. I surrender. No, you don't. So how unyielded could you be and still be saved? See, these people can't answer these questions. You know, okay, obedience is part of the gospel. Okay, how obedient? 100%? No one does that except Christ. Okay, so you just got to learn to ask questions. And we can see the confusion that comes when you try to make saving faith anything but understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. Now, one of the major causes of confusion in understanding faith as simply believing comes from a failure to see the biblical distinction, I think, between a believer and a disciple. Let's compare two verses. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judge. He's passed from death to life. He believes he gets eternal life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now compare that with Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So is forsaking all a condition of eternal life? No, eternal life is a free gift. But discipleship Is costly, as you can see. Discipleship involves commitment. It involves sacrifice. So being a disciple must be different than being a Christian. You become a Christian by believing the truth. It is belief of the truth, nothing more and nothing less that separates the saved from the damned. Now someone is bound to ask, well, if we receive eternal life simply by believing, why should we even bother to live a holy life? And by this question, I think they would mean to be saying that living a holy life earns them a way to heaven. See, believers are to live a holy life out of gratitude for what God has done for them. And when you really understand grace, the response is gratitude and surrender to God. I think that most Christians, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, most Christians tend to base their personal relationship with God on their performance, And if they're not performing, they really feel bad that night, go to sleep wondering if they're even a Christian because they had such a bad day. Our relationship is not based on performance, and we ought to be so thankful for that. It's based on His grace. But the truth is most Christians are legalistic in their walk with God. You understand that nothing you will ever do will ever cause God to love you more or less. Because you're loved and accepted through the merit of Christ. Yeshua rendered perfect obedience to God, and you have received His righteousness by grace through faith. So why do you do what you do? Do you do it out of a love for God? You know, the person living by grace lives wholly out of a loving response to the abundant grace that God has manifest to them in Christ. It's just gratitude. In 2 Corinthians five fourteen, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations here put, constrain us. It's the love of Christ that compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. The word controls here is the Greek word echo, And it means to hold together, to compress, to constrain, to keep in. It's the love of Christ that controls our lives. When we realize who He is and what He's done for us. So gratitude should be our primary motive. But secondarily, I think we should live holy because not to brings God's temporal judgment. And that's James's whole point here. He is stressing the importance of works, which we have defined as love in the life of a believer. That's the works they're looking for, love primarily. Without works, without walking in love, James said our faith will die in 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now last week we looked at verse 14 through 17, so today we're going to resume our study in verse 18, and here James introduces the words of an imaginary objector, and this is really important that we understand what's going on here in the text, okay? In verse 18 and 19 he says, but someone will say, okay, get that? It's someone saying this, here's an objector, you have faith, I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That's the end of the objector. And then he says, Do you want to be shown, O foolish person? So, verse 18 and 19 belong to this imaginary objector. And the response of James only begins in verse 20. And this is a literary format that James uses here that was very familiar in the ancient times of the the Greek diatribe. Now, the diatribe was a learned and argumentative form of communication. And these two phrases here, but someone will say, in verse 18, and then, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? They show us that the diatribe format is being employed here. In verse 18 and 19, in a large majority of the Greek manuscripts of this epistle we read where it says apart from there is just by. Show me your faith by your works, not apart from. The literal Greek would read like this. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith from your works. I will show you from my works my faith. You believe there's one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So the objector is in effect saying this. Faith and works are two distinct entities. They're not connected at all. And it's absurd to see a close connection between faith and works. For the sake of argument, this is the objector saying this, let's say you have faith and I have works, let's start here. You can no more start with what you believe and show it to me by your works than I can start with my works and demonstrate to you what I believe. So the impossibility of showing one's faith apart from one's works is now demonstrated, or the objector thinks, by his illustration. His illustrations says, you believe there's one God that dem- the demons believe and tremble. So the objector is saying, listen, men and demons both believe the same truth, that there's one God, but their faith does not produce the same response. Although the article of faith may move a man to do well, it never moves demons to do well. All they do is tremble. So faith and works, the objector is saying, have no built-in connection at all. The same creed may produce entirely different kinds of conduct. Faith Faith cannot be made visible through works. Now, Gordon Clark asks a question here that's very appropriate. Gordon Clark is just, uh, if you've not read his stuff, he's an amazing theologian. Clark writes, the text says the devils believed in monotheism. All right? There's one God. Why cannot the difference between the devils and the Christians be the different propositions believed, rather than the psychological element in their belief? In other words, the text does not say the demons believed in Christ as Savior, or even they believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Those who use the illustration of the demon's faith to prove the existence of a false intellectual faith that does not redeem are comparing apples with oranges. And so, so people will come up and will see, you don't have the right kind of faith, because the devil's believed, but they're not saved. Well, people, let me explain this to you. Even if the demons did believe the truth of the gospel, they can't be redeemed. Christ did not die for demons. He died for men. Demons can't be redeemed, and that's why they tremble, because judgment is certain for them. Now, are faith and works in the Christian daily experience dynamically related? Does faith really die without the sustaining energy of works? Such thoughts, the objector is saying, are contrary to reality. He maintains there's no visible, verifiable connection between faith and works. Faith and works are not really related to each other in any way that you say they are, James. So don't criticize the vitality of my faith because I don't do such and such a thing. Now in verses 20 through 26, we have James reply to the objector. And he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from works, it's useless? In other words, he says, what a stupid argument. That's basically what he's saying. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Are you willing to know that faith without works is dead? In other words, a thing can properly be said to be dead if it fails to respond to its environment. Now, here we have the word useless, but some translations have the word dead here. So dead faith would be a faith that doesn't respond to its environment. Look at 1 John three sixteen through 18 He says, By this we know love. He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So a dead faith is faith that does not love. Love is the action. Love is obedience to God's laws. Dead equals barren or unproductive. Now, the Texas Receptus uses the word dead there in verse 20. But the modern critics generally accept the rendering barren or useless as a likely meaning or the best meaning. And there's really a subtle play on words here in the Greek. The word works and useless are the words ergon, And argos, which is works, workless. So if you don't work, your faith is barren. It's fruitless. It is useless. It's not producing anything. Notice what 2 Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So he's saying you have faith, right? Let's supplement that. Let's add to that, right? What are we going to add? Virtue, virtue knowledge, Knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. See, you've got these things in your life, they'll keep you from being unfruitful because you're actually living out your faith. The word unfruitful here that Peter uses is often used of things which there's no profit derived from. So faith, apart from works, is unfruitful. And I think Yeshua teaches this very thing in John 15, where he says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, he says, are you clean? Because of the word that I've spoken to you, abide in me. Now, I think this is a good text for helping us see the distinction between Christians and disciples. He says, you are clean. If you go back to chapter 13, he says, you're clean, but not all. Because Judas was there in chapter 13. Judas is gone now. He says, you're clean. And he's talking about they have life. Okay, you're clean. You're Christians. You guys are clean. And then he says this, abide in me. So abiding must be a distinction if he's telling the Christians to do this. All right, you're a Christian, I want you to abide in me. Then he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself. So if you're not abiding, you're not going to bear fruit. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we have to abide. We talked about this as we went through the Gospel of John. Abiding in Christ, remaining in him, walking with him. And he goes on to say, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. All right. So whoever abides in me and I in him, they bear much fruit. And that's the idea. We want to be a fruitful. We want to have a fruitful life. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now look, he doesn't say, if you bear much fruit, you'll prove to be a Christian. That's how most Christians translate this. That's how most Christians see this. That's how you prove that you belong to Christ, because you're bearing fruit. Why didn't the Lord say that? Did he make a mistake here? Should he have said that? I think he knows what he's talking about, right? He's talking to Christians. And he says, you bear much fruit, you'll prove that you're my disciples. Fruit bearing proves that. The Christian who abides in Christ will produce fruit. In other words, they will walk in love. And failure to abide results in chastening. And he talks about that, the the branches he says, like a branch it withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He's not talking about hell here, okay? He's talking about discipline, chastisement, okay? Look at Matthew 13, 22. This is a parable of the different soils, and he says, and as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the word, and it proves So here's a Christian that's unfruitful. Now, most people would say, you know, only one of these soils is a Christian, and the other three soils are not even Christians. I disagree. I think one of them's not, and the other three are, all right? But here we see a believer whose faith dies, and they become unfruitful. Now, Luke gives us some insight into the fact that the person was, in fact, a believer. In Luke's version of this, in 8.13, he says, "...and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy." But these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Now, here's what's strange about this. John Calvin used this verse to teach what he called temporal faith, temporary faith. Okay, in other words, you you believe for a while. And my question to Calvin would have been, so did you have temporary eternal life? Because when you believe, you get eternal life. So if you have temporary faith, did you get temporary eternal life? Which I guess wouldn't really be eternal life. It'd be the five, ten year plan, whatever. So no, they be- they were believing. And the idea here is that the cares in the world and these things are choking it out. And they're not being fruitful. Now to prove his point, James used the illustration of Abraham in verses 21 through 24. He's dealing with this objector. So he says, okay, let me give you an illustration. And he says, if you can't see the dynamic interaction between faith and work in Abraham's famous act of obedience, you won't see it anywhere. Abraham had a living faith because he acted on what he believed. 2.21, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So James here says that Abraham was justified by works. That should cause you to have paroxysms, okay? Wait a second. That you know, Abraham was the father of faith, right? To be justified means to be right with God. So James is here saying Abraham was justified by works. You see why this chapter confuses so many people and gets so many people up in arms about works? Well, let's go back and compare James with Paul because these two seem to have different opinions on things. Paul taught that Abraham was justified by faith. James is saying he's justified by our works. Let's go to Paul in Romans 4. What shall we say then? Was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham, watch, if Abraham was justified by our works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he's saying, well, no, it was by faith, okay? Now watch, he goes on to say, just, so you, just to make sure you're clear on this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. Do you get that? If you come to the end of the week and your boss comes up to you and hands you your check says, here's a gift. They just told you, you're worthless. You didn't do a darn thing this week, Okay. Because it's not a, I would say, that's not a gift. I earned that. I've been working all week. That's what that's for, okay? And that's what he's trying to say here, okay? We have to understand that. He says, Abraham believed God is counted as righteous, but the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. It's what you earned. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You understand why people think James and Paul have problems with each other, right? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul makes it really clear in Romans 4 that justification is by faith alone. Paul also says this in Galatians 3.6, Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says that justification is by grace through faith, and he uses Abraham as his illustration, and he quotes Genesis 15.6. James says justification is by works. He uses Abraham as his illustration, and he too quotes Genesis 15.6. So how do you reconcile this? Well, I think that the key is understanding this. In Romans 4.2, 4, 4, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And that little phrase is really important there. You can't be justified by works before God, only by faith. When you believe the gospel, the righteousness of God is imputed to you Now, Romans 4.3, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God was counted to him as righteousness. So when you trust Christ, the righteousness of God is imputed to you. In verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. The word counts there means to deposit into your account. It's a gift of God's grace. We're all bankrupt. We stood before God with nothing in our account and God by his sovereign choices will deposited Christ's righteousness into our account and we believe the gospel. Genesis 15, 6, he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, this is how it's always been, people. Old covenant, new covenant, we are made right with God by his grace. He dispenses his grace to us and we respond by believing and are saved. Works, works, are not involved. Now does James believe this? Yeah, he really does. In James 2:23, he quotes Genesis 15:6. Well, then people say, "What does he mean that Abraham our father was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar?" James says here that he was justified when when he offered his son on the altar, right? That was 40 years after the time when he is said to have believed God. So if works are necessary for justification, then Abraham went 40 years believing God without being justified. I think the problem is resolved by understanding that there is another justification, and it's by works. There's justification before God by faith, and there's justification before men by works, the things we do. And it should be clear that James and Paul are not using the word justified in the same sense. Remember our hermeneutical principle, the analogy of faith. Scripture can't contradict Scripture, so something's wrong here. They can't be contradicting each other. Also remember the principle we talked about, determine carefully the meaning of words. James uses the word justified in the sense of vindicate. Warren Wearsby says this, By faith he was justified before God and his righteousness declared. By works he was justified before men and his righteousness demonstrated. Layman Strauss says, There's one justification before God and one's justification before the world of men. George Manfred Gutsky says, James uses the word justified with a different emphasis than Paul did. When James writes about justification, he's referring to the experience of a person being made acceptable before God in actual practice. It is one thing to be cleared from all guilt because Jesus died for us. It's another thing to have our way of life acceptable in the sight of God. And I agree with them there. There's two kinds of justification. Abraham was justified by faith before God, but he was also justified by works before men. See, the only way we can demonstrate our faith before men is by our actions, by our love. You can't look at somebody and say, well, obviously they're Christian, just look at them. You have to see something. You see them demonstrating this before men. Look at uh, John thirteen thirty four and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. That's a pretty high standard. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, he's stressing this fact, they'll know you belong to me, you'll know you're my disciple, because of your love. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So living faith is demonstrated in a life of love. Now, Abraham was justified by his faith in Genesis fifteen six, and he was justified by works in Genesis 22, which was 40 years later. Well, let's look at Genesis 22. So just see how this all plays out. This is 40 years after he believed God, all right? Now, before Isaac's birth, Abraham had nothing to rely on but a promise, okay? God made him a promise, and he had nothing but that. Genesis 15:5, he brought him outside. He said, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So, what did Abraham have to verify that promise? Well, he had a very old wife that was barren and had never had children, he himself was pretty old. He had nothing to believe in but the promise that God gave him. And then Sarah becomes pregnant, Isaac is born, and now he has more than a promise, now he has Isaac. But the problem is, now that he has Isaac, he's in danger of leaning on Isaac instead of on God. He and Sarah had finally had a son. Abraham believed God, but could his faith stand the test of time? And so God tests Abraham. In Genesis 21.1, he says, And these things, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So God tests him. Is he going to live on his, is he going to act out his faith? Is he going to trust God? Is he going to move forward? In verse 2, he said, Take your son. Now watch what he says. Your only son. You only got one. Take that one. Oh, the one you love. Let's just, you know, make this really difficult. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Of which I shall tell you. So God makes a promise to Abraham that He'd have a son 40 years earlier. He finally got the son, and now he's told to kill him. Would he act on? Would he obey God? As a parent, how do you respond to this? I'd say, "Mm, is that really you, God? I'd need some confirmation here. You know, I, I need a lot of things. But Abraham's response is simple. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of the young men with him, his son Isaac, cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place of which God told him. So Abraham's faith in the covenant-keeping God was alive, and he acted on what he was told to do. This is just an incredible act of faith, because God had made Abraham a very specific promise of blessing to the whole world through Isaac, and if he kills Isaac, then what happens? And yet Abraham's willing to kill his son in obedience to Yahweh, figuring God would work this out somehow. In verse 5 he says, Then Abraham said to his young men, stay, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, worship, and we'll come again to you. So Isaac was the one essential link between the aged couple and the fulfillment of God's promise of a great posterity. So Abraham says, We'll come again to you. So he had faith somehow that God was going to do something. And we talked about this several weeks back. I think he just believed that God would raise the dead if he needed to. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for an offering? What do you tell your son? (laughs) Watch what Abraham says. I love it. Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. Is that awesome? God will provide it for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now, Abraham tells his son that God's going to provide. And this is a prophecy of the atonement of Yeshua, who is the Lamb of God. And I think you know the rest of the story. If you don't, you can read it for yourself. Abraham pulls back the knife to kill his son. God stops him. He finds a ram caught in a thicket and he can offer that ram as the sacrifice. This is an incredible act of faith on Abraham's part because he believed God and he acted on what he believed. And the word justified can be used in one of two ways, and we have to understand this, all right? It can be used to declare and treat as righteous. That's how most of us see the word justified. Oh, But it can also be used to vindicate, to show or demonstrate as righteous. Look at Luke 7.36. Yet wisdom is justified By all her children. And this is teaching that a wise act produces good fruit. It vindicates a person's wisdom. So Paul uses the first here when he talks about justification to declare and treat as righteous. James uses the second. So James is using the word justified to speak of vindication or a demonstration of his righteousness. In 2.21 he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see then that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So here we see that Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac. And again, that's 40 years later. And you might conclude from this that the main factor in reaching the goal was works. So this can't be referring to the first use of justification. To declare righteous. Work, strengthen his faith, and give it vitality. Completed here means matured. And what he's saying is our faith is matured when we act on it. And as clearly as faith has generated obedient activity, so too has obedient activity generated a richer faith. And In other words, when you act on what you believe, your faith grows. You make progress. Abraham had a conviction that God could overcome a metaphorical deadness exhibited by his own body. Romans 4.19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. You know, some of the older translations, I think the King James says, he didn't consider his own body. No, that's wrong, totally wrong. He did consider it. This body's dead. It's as good as dead, since he's 100 years old. Or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, so he didn't take, you know, okay, looking at it naturally, this will never work out. But Abraham moved to the assurance that if necessary, God could actually resurrect his son's body from the dead if he needed to. And that's what he says in Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac, and he who received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, everything you're going to get is coming through him, but you're going to kill him? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he received him back. How much faith does it take to believe in something that's never happened? You know, somehow he believed God's going to work this out. Whether he believed the seed was Isaac or he believed the seed would come through Isaac, he just, God's going to work this out. And he just obeyed God. You know, sometimes we try to make everything logical in our own brain before we can act. You know, God's got to make sense to us. Let me ask you this. Could Abraham have believed God and not acted to offer Isaac? Do you believe God sovereignly controls all things? Do you believe Romans 8, 28 is true? God works all things together for good to those who love him. Do you always act on what you believe? Do this. No, you don't. So therefore, yeah, Abraham could have believed God and not acted. And the point is, like Abraham, we too have been accounted righteous before God by faith. Yet that original confidence in God is expanded and developed by a life of active obedience. When we act on our faith, our faith grows. And the scripture he says was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Who are the friends of God? All believers friends of God? Well, John 15:14 says, "You're my friends if you do what I command you." How about that? So the friends are the obedient ones. See, friendship is based on obedience. Because of his living faith, Abraham was called the friend of God. He obeyed him. Verse 24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, the shift to the second person plural here shows that the argument with the imaginary opponent has been dropped and he returns to the point. James never speaks of justification by faith and works. It's either faith or works. Now, in verse 24, James is saying that justification by faith is not the only justification that there is. James does not say that justification by faith cannot exist apart from justification by works. If this was true, it would have been 40 years before Abraham had been justified. Now, next, James moves to another illustration. He uses Abraham, and every Jew loved Abraham, the father of the faithful. And then he uses Rahab. (laughs) goes from Abraham to a prostitute. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. How'd you like to have that title? Rahab the prostitute. Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, here's what's really important for you to see here. In this illustration... James is returning to his fundamental theme of saving your physical life from judgment. And Rahab is a great illustration of that. Abraham and Rahab are about as different as they could be, right? You got a Jew, you got a Gentile. You got a man, you got a woman. You got a good person, you got an evil person. You got a God-fearer, you got a pagan. But Rahab was like Abraham in that she acted on what she believed and it saved her life. Okay, let's go back to Joshua chapter two and look at this passage about Rahab and see why he uses Rahab as an illustration here. And Joshua, the son of Nun, I guess he didn't have a father, (laughs) sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Every time he's talking about Rahab, she's the prostitute. Okay, and they lodged there. I don't know if that's a good idea, guys. Go to the prostitute's house and hang out, you know? Not, not good for your testimony, right? And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. So somehow the king gets word. These guys came to Rahab. They're over at his house. Who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I don't know where they went from. And when they the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. So she's just lying. You know, she hit them and now she's lying. And people have go crazy. Oh, she's lying. Yeah, the king didn't deserve the truth. She's protecting life, okay? But here's what's funny to me. The harlot says to the king, Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So here the harlot's giving the king advice. Here's what you should do, king, okay? And people, we, And you have to understand the context of what a king was back then. A king was an absolute authority. Absolute, he could just do whatever he wanted. Take whoever he wanted. Kill whoever he wanted. He could do whatever. And here's this harlot saying, hey, let me tell you what you should do, king. <laughs> but it says, that she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them in the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the king sent men, they go chasing after these guys, and the guys are still on her roof. But before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. What is significant in that phrase? What? What I want you to see here is the capital L-O-R-D. That's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. That is the covenant name of God. Rahab doesn't say, I know that Elohim, God, just the general name for God, has given you the land. She goes, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, has given you the land. So somehow she's like, she knows who this God is, okay? And that the fear of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. These people are afraid to death of these Israelites because they've heard the story. And he says that, For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Okay, we heard these stories. The sea just dried up. You guys walked across on dry ground. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan of Sihon Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there's no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, your Elohim, He is Elohim in heavens above and on earth beneath. That's quite a statement by this harlot. Now then... Please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab says here, Elohim, or Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohim of heaven and earth. So she is believing that God is the Lord of all, and she acts on this, and she literally, physically saved her own life. Because she believed that God was who he was, she goes, I'm going to help you guys out because will you guys save my life? Because I know you're going to come in here and wipe this whole city out because we know what your God has already done. I know your God's reputation. So how can I help you? Listen, Rahab would have died with the inhabitants of Jericho had she not acted on what she believed. She believed that Yahweh was God, the God. And so she acted on it and she saved her life Not only her own life, but her family's life. Josephus accredits Rahab's safety to her good deed. Yeah, she acted on it. Again, she didn't just say, oh, yeah, your God is the God. No, let me help you out here so you can save my life. And James readers, James is trying to say, can do the same thing. They can save their lives if they were committed doers of the word. And so can we. If it was a case of escaping physical death, which sin could so greatly hasten, faith alone can't save anyone. But faith that worked could. And we need to see the connection between faith and works. There is a vital connection. Life preservation is at the core of this whole passage. So what kind of works vindicate faith? Well, as we said in our last study, love is the work of faith. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts anything but only faith working through love. So Abraham and Rahab, they both laid their lives on the line for what they believed. Their love caused them to be willing to sacrifice all for what they believed. You know, if Rahab would have got caught by the king, find out what she did, that's it, treason. She's dead. But she figured, if I don't do something... I'm dead anyway because this city is going to be destroyed by Yahweh. So their faith was alive and their faith kept them alive. And James closes his argument with this. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. For as is literally just as even so. In other words, in this analogy, in both cases, if the second member is missing, the result is death. A person's faith, like his body, can die. And James is saying here, works are actually the key to the vitality of your faith. His point is not that a vital faith is the key to works. When love separates from faith, that faith becomes fruitless. It becomes useless. And when our faith dies, we lose our fellowship with God and we come under temporal judgment. Now, Abraham's obedience to God was an act of love. John 14, 15. If you love me... You'll keep my commandments. He loved God. He demonstrated that because he obeyed him. And Rahab's risking her life was also an act of love. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for a friend. She literally laid down her life to save these people. Biblical love is defined as obedience to God and sacrificial service to our neighbor. And love is the spirit that keeps faith alive. The Corinthians were believers, but they lacked love, and they were temporally judged because of it. So I want to ask us this morning, how would you characterize your faith? Is it living, or is it dead? Are you a doer of the word, as James says, or are you a hearer only? And let me remind you that a dead faith is in danger of temporal judgment. It is a living faith that preserves the physical life and brings temporal blessing. And for a Christian to think that because I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter what I do is so to so grossly misunderstand the word of God because God cares about how we live and the Lord chastens whom he loves. He wants us to live in holiness because he knows that will bring us the greatest blessing in life, the greatest joy, the greatest happiness. And when we try to go our own way and don't act on our faith, it causes all kinds of problems. Whom the Lord love, He chastens. So Paul and James, are they don't have a conflict with each other. Okay? Not at all. They both believe that salvation is by grace through faith. But James' whole thing is here, stressing here, you have to act on what you believe. You have to live it out if you want to understand the blessings of the temporal life here and now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. I thank you, Lord, that for the analogy of faith, for the fact that we have guidelines to look at Scripture by so we don't have to be confused. We know something's wrong here in our understanding because James and Paul can't be in conflict with each other because they're both writing the living word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have today to study and learn. I pray that we take what we know and put it into action in our lives, Lord, that our faith would be a living faith that demonstrates the reality of who you are to everyone around us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Questions? Comments? (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. You mentioned it time and time, time again. James 519, James James is talking to Christians, but then he um, I don't remember how to bring it. he calls them sinners. Well yeah, he's talking to Christians because he said they've erred from the truth. Yeah. I mean a non-believer can't err from the truth, they live in no. error. Okay. Yeah. That's how they're not wandering from it. They're never in. It. But it Christians. And he calls them brothers, and is calling them brothers, he's writing to believers. Abraham, in his act and his work of putting Isaac on the altar, I mean, I'm just saying it a different way, I guess. I see that as a great act of faith because he It was a great act of That's the that, whole thing. Yeah. He, he's faith. faith. No. Demonstrated. You know, he okay. said he believed God. Well, look, he did believe God. All right? And he, he obeyed Him. And that's the thing. If you love me, keep my commandments. God commanded him to do this, and he just went and did it. Well, it was, I haven't gotten a commandment to do that, but there's a lot of people I'd like to put them up. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, how did, uh, where did Rahab get her faith, her knowledge and trust of Yahweh? Well, she heard about it. Okay, And she heard about the works. They obviously heard about what happened in Egypt. And again, we don't usually think of this, but the Bible mentions it several times. God in Egypt was battling Egypt's gods. Okay, And he was demonstrating his power over their gods. So Rahab knew, okay, Egypt's got these gods. These gods were powerless before Yahweh. He destroyed them all and brought these children out. He's wiping out everybody along the way. We're in the way. We're dead. And she just believed that. (laughs) News. <laughs> she, yeah. she didn't hear it on the fake news, that's for sure. But somehow the word had gotten to them about this, and it, you know, she believed. She, she said, okay, Yahweh. Maybe not in her case, but generally they lived in fear for 40 years, waiting for them mm. to get all the way across the desert. Yeah, I mean, again, there was enough time for uh, the word to travel. Yeah. Okay, I got got an important question here. Is that a brown suit or a gray suit jacket you're wearing? The color must be off. It's tan. It's tan. It's brown. Brown? Brown and tan, aren't they the same thing? Your pants would be tan. It's kind of the same color as the back. It's supposed to be, I get you know, it's... My wife and I can't even agree on what color things are, so I don't know, you know. (laughs) Okay, Mark says, from Texas said, you said a couple of times when you believe, you get eternal life. Can you elaborate? Because it seems to me that life is a necessary precondition for belief. I agree with you 100% okay, we get, we receive life, and then because of that, we believe. And there, you know, I've got a message, Mark, on the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. Yes, technically, we could get into that order, but faith and eternal life go together. So we know that somebody has eternal life because they believe, but the eternal life has to come first. God has to give you life. Dead men can't believe. So yes, technically, you are correct. Well, I mean, life could that different in eternal life? You're given life. You're spiritually awakened to believe, and as a gift, you're given life eternal. It's not like they don't have to be the same life. Yeah, I mean we can get in a lot of technicalities here. And again, when I go through the Ordo Salutis, I think you have to have be given life, then you believe, then you're safe. So salvation comes after faith. But again, in the bottom line here, you're right, Mark, that you can't believe the gospel until God gives you life. Yeah. Okay? Because most of the church thinks it's the other way around. You do this, and if you do, if you believe the right thing, God will give you life. Well, you're dead, so you can't believe. So, but yes, you were given life, and then you believe, and now you have eternal life. Um, eternal life should be putting on immortality. You, believe, you give a life, you believe, and you grow on immortality. Okay, could be that. Like I said, there's a lot of <laughs> distinctions here we could make, make. sure that but, life doesn't go away, But but the important thing to understand is, yes, you're right, Mark. And and thank you. Listen, Mark, you nailed it. That's the whole reason I do this question and answer. You know, I say something. Did I make you confused? I want to clarify. So thank you for giving me that opportunity, Mark, to clarify because that's